WNYC in New York. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. For the mainstream media this week, as most weeks, there was chaos in Trump land. Out front next, breaking news, a government shutdown, no end in sight, anti-Trump protests across the nation. A day of Russia-related developments, all of which hint at a ramped-up investigation in at least the obstruction of justice part of things. Late today, NBC News reporting Mueller has interviewed former FBI Director Comey, focusing on if Trump interfered in the Flynn investigation. Washington Post is reporting that Special Counsel Mueller is seeking to question President Trump. Attorney General Jeff Sessions was interviewed apparently just last week for hours. But for many on the far right, the Trump administration is on the brink, not of failure, but of total vindication. A growing number of House Republicans now demanding the release of a top-secret memo. That four-page memo that is at the center of these allegations that top Obama officials at the FBI and the Justice Department were conducting surveillance of top Trump officials. This scandal is one of the biggest abuses of power in American history. It is time that you, the American people, get the truth. We are once again calling on you to contact Congress. Let them know you want the memo released. The memo in question is a classified document put together by California Republican Devin Nunes, which, according to him and some of his fellow Republicans, demonstrates once and for all that the Obama administration abused its powers to spy on Donald Trump and his campaign. In fact, it demonstrates that the entire Mueller investigation is a corrupt sham. Or rather, it would demonstrate that if only we could see it. The big thing about the memo is that it's classified. So only members of Congress and their staffs have seen it. And of course, because it's classified, they can't describe per se what's in the memo but they can certainly make a lot of illusions about it, and that's what really lets minds run wild. Will Summer is an editor for The Hill and author of Right Richter, a newsletter devoted to right-wing media where hashtag release the memo was just the most recent meme to take hold and spread like wildfire. This is really something that has come from sort of out of nowhere to just take over the right-wing media. It's what everyone's talking about. On Thursday afternoon last week, a couple of Republican congressmen got up on the floor of the House and they said, Today, I had the opportunity to go into a confidential setting, and I'm here to tell all of America tonight that I am shocked to read exactly what has taken place. I would think that it would never happen in a country that loves freedom and democracy like this country. And we saw this just really explode within a few hours. People like Sean Hannity on Fox News, who's at the forefront of a lot of the new conspiracy theories. This, so you understand, is so much bigger than Watergate. It's about our Constitution, about the rule of law. It has been shredded. And additionally, just tons of internet grassroots people, conspiracy-minded outlets like Infowars with Alex Jones and Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, they've been tweeting, release the memo, someone send us the memo, really acting like it's going to be this sort of golden ticket that reveals everything. Lots of memes, lots of pictures of a smug Trump saying, time to release the memo. And of course, with any of these things, there's also some amount of bot activity by uh, Russian bots. Talk about that. Sure, the origins of this are American, but researchers who follow this stuff have seen these accounts that they suspect of being Russian bots proliferating and really sort of signal boosting, as it were, the Mm -hmm. release the memo hashtag. The colorful Alex Jones of InfoWars claimed to have the memo. Here it is, just sent to us. This is the classified memo. You want it, you got it. 
Tomorrow's news today. Got the whole thing. In fact, the rest of it's coming out of the printer, guys. We bring it to me, please. The one by my office in the hall. Yeah, th this was kind of a, a flop for Alex Jones. Uh, <laughs> he was saying, you know, I have the memo in front of me, and he had a big stack of papers. How many hundreds of pages is this? It's 100. It's 99 pages without the cover. Now, we know for a fact that the memo is four pages. So his overhead camera is showing the, the pages from the supposed memo. Uh, there's page one. That's a good shot right there. There's uh, page two. This is all how they did it to Trump. All the spine, good God. People start looking at this and they start Googling phrases in the memo. And as it turned out, this was a previously released, like a nearly year old document. <laughs> and some of the other conspiracy theorists were kind of mad at him, but they were just like, you've discredited the memo. You know, we, we need the real memo. And, and, and in fact, release the memo briefly had a rival called release the real memo. It's out there somewhere. <laughs> you compared the fervor behind the memo to another ongoing right-wing internet fixation, something our listeners probably wouldn't have heard of. It's a complex conspiracy theory called The Storm. The Storm is kind of like a mega conspiracy theory from Pizzagate to the murder of Seth Rich. It's all kind of blended into The Storm. And the origins of this are, are pretty wild. Someone started posting anonymously on the really kind of scuzzy forum 4chan. <laughs> a lot of Trump supporters on there. And this person was calling themselves Q, which is supposedly a reference to the top secret Q security clearance, who could really be anyone. Then people are saying, well, you know what? I think this is a member of the Trump administration who's sending us clues. The storm has begun. Now it says the eye of Providence, and it crossed out the Rothschilds in the House of Sod, and it circles Soros, 444. It says that this is the key. You'll need it in the coming weeks. There are a lot of, like, vague things about Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Huma Abedin and this baseless allegation about a pedophile ring in D.C. around a pizza parlor. Right. So these clues, which have come to be called breadcrumbs, these are all kind of blended together into this idea that, you know, maybe Obama's already been arrested and sent to Guantanamo Bay. During the pre-dawn hours on Christmas Day, Delta Force operators launched a precision strike against an Obama-controlled stronghold in Thailand. And another thing that leads right back into Q, the Secret Service has the ability to arrest anybody they suspect of committing a felony without an arrest warrant. Michelle Obama hasn't said anything since the 11th. John Podesta hasn't said anything since the 27th. All of this together really does lend some credence to the idea that maybe Trump just mass-arrested these people. We're basically in martial law right now in a good way. And the way it ties into the Russia investigation is this idea that, in fact, Trump and Mueller are working hand-in-hand -hand to investigate the Clintons. <laughs> and it, this is all kind of a ruse. I mean, already we've seen Sean Hannity retweet a tweet that mentioned QAnon. And if the Russia investigation gets worse for the administration, I think we'll find more people looking for counter-narratives like QAnon or like release the memo. But what happens if these narratives are exposed definitively as bunk? What if the memo's released and there's really nothing there, as the Democrats contend? Right. Certainly, it seems like even Republicans who have seen the memo don't have a ton of confidence in it. Someone asked Republicans who had seen the memo today whether they were in favor of releasing it or whether they had confidence in its conclusions. And a lot of them said, you know, no comment. You know, uh, <laughs> you know once it comes out, though, I mean, I, I think for Trump supporters and people in the right-wing media, historically, we've seen it kind of doesn't matter, and they just move on to the next thing. You kind of just keep the machine going forward as far as the narrative goes. Why? I mean, certainly from a business perspective, the audience that consumes this stuff, whether it's on Fox News, talk radio, or online, it's better to 
tell the audience that they're winning and that things are going Trump's way. So, for example, after the Roy Moore allegations came out, there was like a real hunger for someone who was going to not just sort of deflect it like Breitbart did, but really go on the offensive against the accusers. And so we saw like Gateway Pundit was willing to step up. And so they got a lot of attention for that. Mm -hmm. And so there's a business advantage in not alienating the audience by acknowledging bad news. That's why there's not a ton of introspection when these things flop. So these memes and conspiracy theories, they're like an endless smorgasbord of good news that Trump's base can feed on whenever it likes. Absolutely. I mean, it's certainly much more entertaining, you know, in the case of the memo to imagine that there's about to be all these revelations than following, say, the shutdown fight or various legislative quagmires the administration might find itself in. Even beyond the fact that it creates a distraction that's forever churning, it does matter because in the midst of the Pizzagate scandal, we saw one true believer take a gun and nearly carry out a shooting. There was a guy who was just busted for threatening to attack CNN for being fake news. The idea that, you know, these elites are trying to obstruct the will of the people or overturn the election or that there's a coup in the offing, as you can hear on Fox News now, that kind of pushes people, especially people who are maybe atomized and outside of a normal society, that can push someone to take extreme measures. Have they talked about coups lately on Fox? I mean, the, the, the big thing now on Fox is calling for the U.S. Marshals to arrest Mueller and Comey. <laughs> Conspiracy theories have always been with us. But a unique feature of this moment, obviously, is the abundance of amplifiers, which grow and mutate. You've got meme-heavy internet subcultures that live on sites like 4chan and Reddit. And you watch those religiously for your newsletter. Are these ideas particularly prone to memification, or is it just that there's a greater opportunity to create memes? There's an increased capability, but I think also we're in a, a political moment that is very prone to memes and slogans and ideas that can be transmitted quickly. You know, I mean, ultimately, Trump is kind of the the meme president. He's saying stuff like Crooked Hillary or Lion Ted. and Crying Schumer. You know, yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and those are all picked up by his followers, obviously. During the campaign, they said he practiced memetic warfare, especially in the right-wing media. I, I think they have a much stronger meme creation infrastructure. That's what I was going to ask you. I mean, you focus on right-wing media, but what about the left? Aren't they doing this? I think people on the right would say that the media infrastructure for the left is the New York Times and CNN and NPR and so on and so forth. But I really don't think that's a, an apt comparison because there's no Sean Hannity on MSNBC in terms of just sticking on message and repeating whatever is advantageous for the left's politics at the moment. Not even Rachel Maddow. I don't think so. Certainly that, that'll come down to opinion. We haven't seen, for example, Rachel Maddow promote the left's equivalent of a Seth Rich conspiracy theory in the way that uh, Sean Hannity did. Mm -hmm. Do you see another meme on the horizon? <laughs> well, you know, like the one that always gets a lot of play and I think is on the rise is uh, the idea that Trump is a god emperor. A god emperor. So they're taking this from like video games where people are called god emperors. They do these drawings of Trump as a space warrior. I think as things get worse and worse for Trump, potentially in the Russia investigation, they're going to be leaning on that one pretty hard. Any conspiracies? Obviously, the related thing to release the memo are these FBI text messages, right, which, are, I mean, are legitimate. 
This was one FBI guy on the Russia investigation talking to his girlfriend and saying disparaging things about Trump, basically rooting for Hillary. This was before the election. Yeah, exactly. And the idea that the FBI and the so-called deep state colluded against Trump, that's like the real big thing right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's so many things that you can take from that. I mean, there's secret societies is the latest one. In these text messages, the FBI agent says to his mistress, this is the first meeting of the secret society tonight or something. Mm -hmm. And the senator who saw these texts has really seized on this as proof that there was an FBI secret society society devoted to defeating Trump. So secret societies is really kind of like the new release the memo. Can't they just ask this guy what he meant? Oh, I think he has a lawyer. <laughs> so God, emperors, and secret societies. Yes. Details at 11. Will, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. Will Summer is the author of Right Richter, a newsletter that covers right-wing internet subculture. Political memes, of course, are the inevitable consequence of burgeoning meme culture, a nearly two-decade-long evolution that began with the simple sharing of found Internet objects, like, all your base are belong to us, a quote from a poorly translated Japanese arcade game. Don't ask what it means. Don't ask where it came from. Just accept it as one of those things that's got a lot of people talking. Still confused? Look on the web. It's everywhere. These days, memes are intricate, incremental allusions to previous iterations of the same image or idea. Something goes viral, and then the virus rapidly mutates in sometimes mind-bending waves. Amanda Hess writes about the internet culture for the New York Times. Amanda, welcome to The Big Show. Thanks so much for having me. Look, I'm a thousand years old, (laughs) and I know this conversation places me at risk of, you know, talking about those crazy mop-top kids, but I am astonished by the rapid evolution of this very strange art form. It is an art form, is it not? As an internet critic for the New York Times, (laughs) I would argue that it is. It just looks a little bit different from what we would generally consider to be a work of art because it's not created by an auteur or, you know, an individual genius. It's instead created in its connections between people. Give me, please, some contemporary examples of these kinds of incremental works of art. There's one meme that started out as a stock photo of a guy who's walking down the street with his girlfriend and he is looking behind him because he sees an attractive woman pass and the girlfriend is performatively extremely upset. That has become a meme where people put different labels on the different characters. My favorite one would be (laughs) the girlfriend who's upset is Lot. And (laughs) the boyfriend who's turning around has turned into a pillar of salt. Did you get it? (laughs) That's my favorite one. Uh, That's that's good. And and biblical as well. Right. Tell me about this building on the previous observations and jokes and references of previous memers, that whole mechanism. The stock photo, for example, of a guy looking back at a girl is not a meme. It becomes a meme when it changes, when some meme artist changes its context, turns it into a 
platform for their own commentary. Once a meme gets to a particular point, people aren't even commenting on the original piece anymore. They're commenting on a previous version of the meme. So that at the end, if you are coming to the meme for the first time, you may not understand it at all. It helps to have been in on the joke for a while so that you can see how the joke evolves. Right. This particular conversation springs out of a discussion on political memes, which use the same techniques and the same technology and networks as cultural memes. Are they the same beast? I think that our cultural and social values are always embedded in memes. As freewheeling as they seem, they are built on something. And political memes are just targeting that more specifically in service of a particular candidate or often tearing down a particular person. With politics, I think it's most easily crystallized, like how dangerous that form can actually be because it's all based on sucking up the most attention possible as opposed to distributing information. And I suppose they're sort of classically a double-edged sword because the same distillation of images that get to the heart of things to satirize also enable you to just vastly oversimplify complex social and political questions, you know, and just turn it into hate speech. Or turn it into a cult of personality. I find memes about Trump really interesting because... I mean, this might be itself a politically charged comparison, but if you compare Vladimir Putin <laughs> to Donald Trump, Putin is someone who has built this image of himself as a kind of strong man. So he does these photo shoots where he's scuba diving or hunting. And Donald Trump is sort of a similar figure, except he doesn't do that stuff. He has claimed that exercise... <laughs> depletes a person's energy. But his fans on social media will take his image and put them into this strongman context. So you'll see his head photoshopped onto a scene from Braveheart. He doesn't even have to do the work of staging the photo shoot and, like, working out. Now, just moving from the ridiculous to the horrifying, it strikes me that... The dynamics of meme culture and the dynamics of conspiracy theories are a terribly perfect match. There was an interesting article in the magazine Descent this month that suggests that on the internet, conspiracy theories have lost the theory part. So there's not even the rigor of having to figure out a plausible way in which something has happened. It's just the suggestion that something is wrong. You see it on the internet, but you also see it on Sean Hannity's show, where he's just asking questions or just saying that something doesn't seem right, but is not actually suggesting an answer for why that might be. I think that borrows something from meme culture, where the point doesn't have to have anything to do with fact or reality. It's what captures a cultural vibe. All right. Now, like much of the digital 
world. There are dystopian aspects and utopian aspects. I wonder if you think, on balance, this meme culture, political and otherwise, redounds to the benefit of society or is just taking us down a very dangerous path? People who are making these political memes are participating in their democracy, and they're participating in a way that creates, like, very strong emotional bonds. And I think that's potentially a good thing. The downside is a lot of these memes are themselves very anti-democratic in that they're not based on facts or policies or even values. They're based on personality and feeling, and that can be a really dangerous thing. Amanda, thank you. Thanks a lot. Amanda Hess writes about internet culture for the New York Times. Coming up, does it matter that more than a million women marched last week? Yeah, but not the way you think. This is On the Media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. Last weekend, one year into the Trump administration and one year after the historic post-elections Women's March, protesters gathered once more to show their resistance to the administration and its policies. Researchers estimate that between 1.6 and 2.5 million people participated in women's marches held in the United States last weekend, one of the largest organized protests in human history. This is what democracy looks like! Yet the media coverage was sparse and perfunctory. The major Sunday talk shows hardly mentioned the protests. According to Media Matters, only NBC's Meet the Press had significant discussion of the march for a whopping 20 seconds. Compare this, for example, with the wall-to-wall coverage of the protests in Ferguson and Charlottesville, where property damage and violence figured in. If two million trees fall in the forest and the press is elsewhere chasing a porn star, do they make a noise? The answer, says techno-sociologist Zeynep Tufetsky, is yes. But impact isn't necessarily a function of story count, or even head count. Well, it is one indicator, but it's usually a misleading indicator these days. Because when we think of millions of people in the streets, we tend to compare it in our heads with past protests that were similarly large. And if the March on Washington was quarter of a million people... Imagine what can be done with millions in the streets. So 
that's kind of the way the thinking goes about it. But there's a twist to the story, and it's not that millions of people on the streets don't matter. Of course they do. It's just true that current technology makes it easier to bring out millions of people into the streets. The March on Washington was the culmination of 10 years of movement building, and just planning that march took six months of intense activity, whereas the first women's march last year went from a Facebook post to a large national protest in just a few months. And this current one kind of flew under the radar, too. It didn't really take that kind of intense organization. So it doesn't really indicate the same kind of organizing muscle a similar protest of the past might have met. In your book, you talk about the power of social movements being the sum of three discrete capacities for attracting and influencing individuals. What are they? The protest itself has a capacity for changing the narrative. Like the Ferguson protest, they got our attention on something that had been going on for a while in this country, but was not a priority for people outside affected communities. Protests or social movements can also have disruptive capacity. You, that's when you have large-scale civil disobedience, and you say, we are not going to let things go on the same way before. They can also have electoral institutional capacity, and that's the capacity to threaten politicians. Occupy and Black Lives Matter both have ample narrative capacity. Black Lives Matter! Unarmed men and boys being shot down by police is about as vivid as it gets, and 99% under the heel of 1% is a pretty compelling elevator pitch. To rear square? Taking on a dictator at who knows what costs. All quite dramatic, but compared to let's say, the uh, mass civil disobedience in India under British colonization or the civil rights movement of the 60s, would you say that Occupy and Black Lives Matter are otherwise uncapacious? Well, see, I don't want to say that they didn't matter because they were hugely important and in many ways they changed people's lives. And it's just very new, right? So who knows how much more effect they will have. The thing is, though, in the past, you can think of the protest as an exclamation mark at the end of a long sentence, whereas right now, it's just the first word in a potential sentence. And I think that's the key lesson of my book is not that current protests are unimportant. In fact, I've marched and protested my whole life and will continue to do so. But they are no longer an indicator the way they were in the past, the Occupy movement was very interesting in its ability to tap into a deeply resonant and hugely important issue, inequality, which has been increasing since. But by its politics, it was very resistant to use that resonance to contest elections, and it was very much against doing post-Occupy organizing in other ways, too. And it ended up, like, leaving us with great slogans and... And it's brought the far left into the political conversation. It has done a lot of things, but by itself, it didn't really engage with power till the Bernie Sanders campaign. A large number of Occupy veterans decided that if you sit out, 
contesting power. It's not like power sits on its hands and says, okay, fine, right? And, you know, it just continues on its march. So I would say in some ways the Sanders campaign is somewhat of a outgrowth of the energy that got riled up but couldn't find a place to go. You use an analogy in your book from the relationship between predators and prey called signaling. So the biological analogy is this. Certain kinds of gazelles, when they're grazing, all of a sudden they'll just jump up very high. Now, it seems to be like a really stupid thing because, you know, you're grazing and there are predators and lions and tigers around and you're like, oh, look at me, I can jump really high. Like, why are you putting yourself on the menu? But when they jump high, they're not necessarily saying, oh, look, eat me for lunch. They're saying, look how high I can jump. And if I can jump this high, I can run really fast because the muscles for jumping and the muscles for running are the same thing. So you're kind of signaling how strong you are. And I tend to think of social movements, and especially the street protests or online anything, right? It could be online protests or street protests as a kind of signal too. When you get together as millions of people, just being there, it's not really a threat to anyone. The threat is, look, if we can do this, think what else we can do, right? So that's why I think the easier a protest it is to do, the less power it signals. Now, to give you a very concrete example, it used to really matter if you called your representative. Like if they got 100 calls in a day, they freaked out because that to them signaled there was something major underlying. Whereas right now, a large number of apps, you can just press a button, it'll place the call for you. So all of a sudden, it's actually gotten easier for people to organize and make 100 calls. And you know what? I talked to congressional staffers. They don't care anymore because the magic wasn't in the number of calls. The magic was what did the number of calls signal? So they don't really care about calls anymore, but they still care very much on how many people show up at a town hall or come to the office, because there's no shortcut to that yet. So if you're trying to protest something, the best analytic framework is, how does this look to the person that I'm protesting? So going down the list of capacities and getting back to the Women's March, what with the lack of dead bodies and burning buildings and all, the, the narrative seemed to leave the media unimpressed, but what else do you see happening that may ultimately determine the impact of the anti-Trump protests. So the Women's March is really interesting in that it did go from very little preparation to a giant national march uh, last year. But it has some significant differences with the other movements we kind of studied, including especially Occupy, is that it really is a women's march. The organizers, in fact, vast majority, if not all of the organizers, have been women. Yes, the participants have been of all genders, but it has also got these currents which are very different than a lot of other protest movements, which are high-energy young people, a lot of men, a lot of students, whereas Women's March has kind of led to this movement of mostly middle age mostly women, a lot of them not really engaged in political arena before, but have been very focused on building electoral strength. And it is happening in lots of ways. There's a record number of women running for office. They're doing a lot of organizing. See, the thing is there are certain stories, certain narratives that are harder 
to make their way to media, it's also harder for them to make their way into Hollywood movies, right? They're more complicated. Instead of about individuals, they're about the social fabric and sociology. Instead of having a single hero, they have thousands, maybe millions of people working together. Instead of having flashy moments, they're kind of long-term ground building. And if that's what's happening, and I seem to be seeing a lot of that actually happening, that's the kind of thing that could have major consequences. And they're not getting the kind of attention because just like women's work in many other spheres, it is ignored till it makes a bang. Do you believe that the media have underreported the story and where do you see the coverage headed? Both parties are being reshaped in fundamental ways. And there is a lot of, let's go understand the Trump voter kind of media stories, which you know, arguably, maybe that was uh, undercovered, and arguably that's not a wrong thing to do by itself. But you are not seeing a similar effort to understand the Democratic Party base in its complexity because they're on fire. Like, I have been in this country for a while. I have seen a lot of movements. I've been involved in political movements my whole life. And it's one of the most energetic movements I've ever seen and if you sort of look at the day-to-day media coverage, you just think there's there's some ripples, but not that much. It, there's this whole wave trying to happen, and I think it's really worth looking into. It's kind of mind-boggling because one year ago, the conversation that was going on in the press is that there was this great political shift that we just never saw coming. Is it possible that in whatever it is, 10 months from today, we're going to be having exactly the same conversation and chiding ourselves for exactly the same reasons? It may well be that the effort fizzles partly because it's not recognized and supported. Or it could be it breaks through anyway, and then we'll have the same conversation and people will say, oh, look, record number of women elected or a wave election, and how did we miss this? And I will say the same thing in that the real story isn't who pulls a better stunt. The real story is what is happening between those stunts. There is an enormous amount of fabric building, political fabric building that is being led by women that I think will be quite transformational. How soon will it play out and what else is playing out? I'm not a betting person. I wouldn't bet. But I would say there's this wave that is just trying to make its way, and it's eventually going to make itself felt. Zainab, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Zainab Tufekci is a professor at the University of North Carolina and author of Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Networked Protest. A year ago, then-White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer went on Fox and complained about the steady stream of protests against the new administration. It's not these organic uprisings that we've seen through the last several decades. You know, the Tea Party was a very organic movement. This has become a very paid uh, astroturf-type movement. There was no evidence then or now to suggest that any demonstration was anything other than the genuine expression of concerned citizens. But as David S. Meyer, sociology professor at the University of California at Irvine, told me last year, claiming that protesters are bankrolled by outsiders is a standard political tactic. 
If you can make an audience believe that those who are turning out are paid, that they have ulterior motives, then you discredit them. Another way is to emphasize that they're crazy, that they don't know anything, they're ill-informed or radical, or that they're frivolous. They're there to listen to the concert, Pete Seeger or Bruce Springsteen, or meet dates. Dismissing protesters as paid, shallow, or even unpatriotic goes back decades. Here's Richard Nixon's Vice President Spiro Agnew in 1970. Will America be led by a president elected by a majority of the American people, or will we be intimidated and blackmailed into following the path dictated by a disruptive, radical, and militant minority? the pampered prodigies of the radical liberals in the United States Senate. And J. Edgar Hoover in 1966. The Communist Party of America is doing everything in its power to steal the minds and the souls and the hearts of our young people. They have never worked so feverishly as they have in the last two years in some of our colleges and institutions to enlist the youth of this country in the faith and loyalty to a foreign power, the Soviet Union. And those things are not limited to conservative criticisms of liberal demonstrators. David Meyer. People said the same thing about the Tea Partiers, that the Koch brothers were supporting them all. So the claim that the protesters are being paid is a classic ruse with little basis in reality. One of many tropes you should keep in mind when dissidence is in the headlines. And it's point number one in this Breaking News Consumer Handbook protest edition. Here's another sure thing. TV coverage of protests will always fixate on mayhem. The smashed windows, the flaming trash cans, whether or not they represent the overall nature of the event. Police made arrests after crowds began breaking windows and lit garbage cans and a limo, as you can see there, on fire. When you have a large demonstration, there aren't any bouncers. There's nobody working the door. Somebody coming in with a Molotov cocktail, a racist sign, that's kind of de rigueur. And when you see coverage of a demonstration that emphasizes either the peaceful, sincere protester or the garbage can on fire, you should be mindful of the outlet that's portraying that image. You can do an apparently objective report on a single aspect of a story, let's say a burning limousine, but the very choice of that story is itself subjective and perhaps distorting. Absolutely. You know, when the Tea Party was going on, there were certainly racist signs at some of the demonstrations. How prevalent were they? During Occupy, there was a picture that went viral of somebody defecating on a uh, police car. I believe that really happened. I don't believe that was emblematic of the big diverse movement. I want to know about the violence, but I also want to know about how prevalent it was, and I want to know about the relationship of the people who threw bricks through a Starbucks window and the actual organizers of the demonstration put disturbing events, whatever they might be, in the picture but contextualized. 
One man's protest is another man's riot, although they're actually not the same thing. Around Franklin Square, scene of Friday's Inauguration Day riot involving hundreds of protesters, the aftermath today left many shaking their heads. There's so many people on the other side of the political aisle who just were not going to be happy. Those who are, you know, protesting and near rioting in the streets, those at the airport, so on and so forth. What you call something reflects your view of that thing. We still have arguments in Southern California about the Rodney King riots or the Rodney King rebellion. And you have to understand that when somebody's giving a label to an event, they are trying to change the way you understand that event. Now, hold on, because sometimes simultaneously there is a principled political protest and associated vandalism that is perhaps wholly untethered from the underlying issue. How should consumers best understand that duality? Consumers should see whether there's a long tether or no tether or a very short tether between the people who are being disruptive and violent and the people who are trying to make political claims. Remember, people show up to sell sodas and make money. People show up to just act out. And that's why it's important to provide fuller pictures. For obvious reasons, there's often a focus on numbers, which itself gets very political and contentious. The D.C. Homeland Security Director estimates that the Women's March crowd exceeded 500,000 people. In D.C., about 600,000 people uh, were there. Some say as many as 800,000. Should we not think about numbers at all? I think it's really useful to think about numbers, but I think you have to be suspicious of just about every source. The Park Service stopped providing numbers about 20 years ago after the Million Man March, which maybe was 600,000 or maybe was 1.6 million. Sometimes television networks hire people to take aerial photographs and count grids and multiply, but I guess it's expensive and then nobody believes the numbers anyway. So I think what you want to do is look at characteristic distortions up or down. And I think you want to compare the turnout to similar demonstrations on similar issues. So one great thing the anti-abortion movement has given us is annual demonstrations on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade so you can compare turnout over time and see the salience and urgency of that cause. Activists are paying attention to that. You know, the Tea Party stopped having tax day marches because they turned out to be so small. The grassroots wound up being pictures of grass. (laughs) (laughs) One weird little wrinkle about the coverage of large protests is... What you call the cleanliness coda. Washington is getting, uh, is, is kind of worn out from all the demonstrations and the crowds, the trash that all these, uh, these groups leave behind. The signs are uh, probably alone are a lot. If you focus on the scraps that didn't make it into the can, then you're saying that the demonstrators are irresponsible and careless and selfish. If you focus on, wow, they cleaned up after themselves, everybody was carrying plastic bags and taking stuff home, then you're focusing on responsibility and you're kind of valorizing the protesters. I have never seen a large demonstration where some garbage wasn't left behind. I have never seen a large demonstration where there weren't lots of people carrying plastic bags trying to pick up. 
It's a question of focus. It's axiomatic that if you can't take pictures of it, as far as the TV news is concerned, it practically didn't happen. How should this axiom inform our understanding of the general state of dissatisfaction? The cliché is always that an iceberg is nine-tenths underwater. You have to know that whenever there's a demonstration, there are tons of people watching on TV, downloading photos on social media who are cheering for it and are ready to do other things. So the coverage of a demonstration is 300,000 people showed up in front of the Lincoln Monument and then they went home. Well, responsible, effective journalism tells a deeper story which talks about the grievances that those people are expressing and where did they come from? How did they get there? What are they going to be doing next? We're talking about the nuts and bolts of protests, but did they really matter? Do they ultimately ever change our politics? Not by themselves and not necessarily in the short run. So, for example, in 2009, the Tea Party focused on stopping Obamacare. There were big rallies, disruptive town hall meetings, and in the short run, they lost. Obamacare was passed. But the Tea Party actually grew afterwards, and we're seeing a president who's really the Frankenstein monster of the Tea Party now. So, yeah, protest matters, but not as quickly as the story mass media like to tell. David, thank you very much. Bob, it was a great pleasure. David S. Meyer is professor of sociology and political science at the University of California, Irvine, where he focuses on social movements. You can find the highlights of this conversation distilled into a breaking news consumer handbook protest edition at our website on themedia.org. Coming up, the passing of a science fiction giant. This is On The Media. On The Media is brought to you by Z-Biotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Z-Biotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash OTM and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. For so many black people, the whiz feels like home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. And as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to The Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Carfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Ursula Le Guin died Monday at the age of 88. 
According to her biographer, Julie Phillips, she had a glorious childhood, a painful and perilous adolescence and young adulthood, and then finally, a balanced life of family and artistic creation that enriched all who partook of it. Le Guin wrote groundbreaking, mind-bending science fiction that cut to the heart of gender, politics, morality, and what it means to live and die, all in exquisite prose. David Mitchell, author of Cloud Atlas, called her a crafter of fierce, focused, fertile dreams. I'd also add an explorer of radical ideas. In fact, Le Guin, a Taoist with an anarchist bent, wrote in her acclaimed political dream, The Dispossessed, that the idea is like grass. It craves light, likes crowds, thrives on crossbreeding, grows stronger from being stepped on. She believed that the most fertile ground for ideas was science fiction and defended it against literary snobs. She wrote... To think that realistic fiction is by definition superior to imaginative fiction is to think imitation is superior to invention. But she took no prisoners from any quarter, including her own. Here she is at a science fiction conclave in 1975. Here we've got science fiction, the most flexible, adaptable, broad-range, imaginative, crazy form that prose fiction has ever attained. And we're going to let it be used for making toy plastic ray guns that break when you play with them. And prepackaged, pre-cooked, pre-digested, indigestible, flavorless TV dinners. And big inflated rubber balloons containing nothing but hot air. Well, I say the hell with that. She had strong opinions, and she cared so deeply about science fiction, even though it wasn't the genre that she originally wanted to work in. Julie Phillips is a writer and book reviewer who's long been at work on Le Guin's authorized biography. She started out wanting to be a poet, actually, and write mainstream fiction. You know, she was born in 1929. She graduated from college in 1951. She experienced all of the 40s and all of the 50s, such a repressive time politically and culturally and socially. Hemingway was the writer to be emulated, and Norman Mailer and Saul Bellow, and she just wasn't like that. And she found that realism was a small and stony ground for her work is what she said. She needed more room. You wrote, It wouldn't surprise me if future literary critics read Le Guin as an important ancestor, the writer who brought imagination into realist American literature, that writers who venture into what Michael Chabon calls the borderlands, literary fiction that draws on the fantastic, are almost always following Le Guin's map. You said to just think of her as the eminence grise of the American imagination? Yeah, she came into this kind of minor genre and took a step away from the mainstream to do what she needed to do. And she ended up transforming the mainstream to be more like her. A lot of writers say that her importance to them has to do not so much with exactly what she was doing, which was pretty inimitable, but with inviting them to go their own way. She showed them that if you feel that you're different, 
you don't have to change yourself. You can imagine worlds in which your difference would make sense. That's the thing about the genre and its greatest practitioners. They were world builders, system constructors, different systems Mm -hmm. than we're used to. This is probably due to the fact that her father was a noted anthropologist and her mother wrote about anthropology. They were used to looking at the world from a long lens because they were examining worlds that were not their own. Many of her characters in her early work are looking at other planets from an anthropological perspective. And one of the things that she says about her childhood is, I knew perhaps more clearly than many kids that there were different ways to do almost everything. So I had the sense of freedom that you can get by saying, it does not have to be this way. Let's talk about 1968. She's living in Portland, Oregon. She's living with her husband, the love of her life. She releases A Wizard of Earthsea, which is the first installment in her blockbuster young adult series. She was invited to write a young adult novel by a publisher, gave it some thought, and then this is what she came up with. All the wizards in all the books that I had read in 1967 were old. They were old men, old white men, with white beards and white hair and peaky caps, you know. But you can't be an old man without having been young. And it occurred to me, how does a wizard start out? And, well, obviously, he's got a lot to learn. So where do you learn things? You learn them in school. So you go to wizard school? Ooh, you know. Okay, now I'm telling you, this is 1967. (laughs) Uh, There have been other wizard schools, you know. (laughs) Right. Yeah, there's a a wry reference to Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. This series, you know, it's a young adult series. She's interested in how people form themselves and how people make themselves. She wants to get people to look at the good and bad in themselves, to say, yes, I am all of these things. I can be a good person without being a perfect person. It's about balance for her. Mm -hmm. That was a really important concept in her work. And when she wrote the book Tahanu, the first one with a, a central female character. She was not writing under a man's name, but she was writing from the point of view of male characters. Mm-hmm. And after her great mid-'70s novel, The Dispossessed, came out, she started to feel that that had to change. That was a difficult time for her. She had to feel her way forward She said her mother, even her mother said, why don't you write from a woman's perspective? And she told her mother, I don't know how. Was that a fairly chronological edition, or did she return to the series of Earthsea to write that? No, she came back to it. And then she completely rethought her fantasy world. She said, okay, this world, Earthsea, it's beautiful, but there are some things wrong with it, and I am going to set them right. And so in Tehanu, she made the heroine a middle-aged housewife and thought about how that world would look like from that perspective. Ten years later, she wrote another book, The Other Wind, which brings the whole thing together. I've been thinking about that book a lot lately because there's a world of the dead in the Earthsea books. There's a little wall of stones, and you'll go across, 
and you're in the world of the dead where nothing ever changes and everything is silent and dry. It's grey and empty, the dry land, barren, no sunlight, unmoving stars, no grass or trees or wind. There are people moving around, but they're silent and touching. And in her last book, she said, I don't want this to be the world of the dead. I want the dead to go free. I want them to be part of the living world. Mm. And the last scene is that the people of Ursi break down the wall of stones and release the dead to become part of life again. It always makes me cry when I read it. Isn't that something that someone who is approaching the end of their years might imagine? Yeah. You know, you've created this silent land as a young person without imagining that you yourself, (laughs) that you yourself might one day, and so you change it. She could go back and change her worlds. That was wonderful about her. Let's talk about the next world she created. My favorite of her books, The Left Hand of Darkness, plays with gender so brilliantly. You have humans who have been tinkered with genetically so that they only have periods when they assume a gender. The rest of the time, they're neutral. And so when they It's kind of like your period. It happens (laughs) once a month. So when they meet humans, they seem so overripe and feral and... Like perverts. Yeah, like perverts. And as you read it, you kind of start feeling that way yourself. And Mm -hmm. it was very important to some of the greatest writers of science fiction who are women of color who cite The Left Hand of Darkness for being about people who are brown. Mm. She did it very subtly. She just described Genli Ai's skin as brown. And then you were in his skin. Yeah, because he is the surrogate for all humanity, as we know it, Earth-based humanity. And there was one writer in the essay called Shame. Pam Knowles. Pam Knowles. As a young child of color, loved science fiction, she was as excited as if she'd won the lottery when she realized... Mm. The people in the left hand of darkness were brown. For me, it was the absence of gender that made that so revelatory. Yeah, I think for indigenous people, for gay people and transgender people, she was hugely important in allowing them to envision themselves in the world. If she was looking at the systems imposed by gender and race and otherness in Left Hand of Darkness, she was world-building and examining political systems in The Dispossessed. She said at one point she realized that no one had ever written a pacifist anarchist utopia and... And how did it look? Shevik, the hero, is raised in this egalitarian world, and then he goes to the other world, this capitalist world, and we see it through his eyes as a place of 
more beauty, actually, than the world he's from, but also of greater inequality, and he has to decide what's more important to him. Mm-hmm. And part of what figures, I think, into his thinking is Taoism. Yeah. I think it spoke to a need for emotional balance in her own life. It spoke to her sense that the best course of action in the world was to create balance rather than to attempt change for the sake of change or to go rushing off in one direction or another. She once said that the basic plot of a lot of her books is the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Among her many, many honors... In 2014, Le Guin won the Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters at the National Book Awards. This was 2014. I think hard times are coming when we will be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now and can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being. We will need writers who can remember freedom. Poets, visionaries, the realists of a larger reality. The realists of a larger reality could well describe her. Yeah. Freedom was so important to her. And she was always thinking about what it meant. Nothing was ever a fixed concept for her. The tensions that she brings out in her work are very American, in a way, tensions about the other, about alienation, about who we think we are and who we actually are, who we could be. Julie, thank you very much. Thank you. Julie Phillips is a writer and book reviewer who's long been at work on Le Guin's authorized biography. Do you people realize, by the way, that to my three children, science fiction is not a low form of literature involving little green men and written by little contemptible hacks. It's an absolutely ordinary, respectable, square profession. It's the kind of thing your own mother does. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from John Hanrahan, Isaac Napel, and Philip Yiannopoulos. And our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson, and our engineer this week was Andrew Dunn. Katya Rogers is our executive producer, Jim Schachter's WNYC's vice president for news, bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.